This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. Last Saturday night, 250,000 people took the streets of Tel Aviv in protest. Approximately 500,000 did so throughout Israel. I was there in the Hart Center at the intersection of Kaplan Street and Begin Boulevard. It's an interesting metaphor, the street names. Eliezer Kaplan, of course, was active in the labor Zionist movement and present at the signing of the Declaration creating the State of Israel. Menachem Begin was solidly on the right wing of the political spectrum and his Likud party's triumph in 1977, making him the first right-wing prime minister in Israel's history, marked a huge shift in the country's politics and balance of power. Notwithstanding their differences, I think it's safe to conjecture that if they could see the anger and rage that is tearing Israel apart today, that Begin and Kaplan would unite on the stage at the Tel Aviv intersection bearing their names and implore the people to find a way to compromise and strengthen this historical miracle, Israel. In their place were hundreds of thousands of Israelis, what many considered to be the salt of the earth. But Prime Minister Netanyahu and his coalition partners vilify the protesters as anarchists, leftists, and terrorists. So much attention has been focused on the so-called judicial reforms in recent months, but the discord tearing Israel apart is about much more. I have written extensively on our website, stateoftelaviv.com. Please check it out. This is possibly the most critical moment in the 75-year history of this country, when the future is being determined in the most profound way. Will Israel remain a liberal democracy, or will it mutate? almost literally overnight, into an autocracy with very pronounced theocratic leanings. The main issues in this crisis are those raised in the so-called judicial reform legislation that this coalition government is shoving through the Knesset at a frenzied, crazy pace. In a nutshell, the Netanyahu government says that the Supreme Court of Israel has, in effect, hijacked democracy and defanged the Knesset. They want to strengthen Israeli democracy, they say. So, their reform package would have the political leaders of the day assume total control over the appointment of all judges at all levels, as well as senior public servants in the Ministry of Justice. This means, in short, that the Israeli justice system would no longer be regarded as being independent by international or any standards, and the implications of that are huge. The government takes the position that it is free to reform at will. We won the election, they say. We ran on judicial reform. The people have spoken. Not quite. No one ran on the reforms that are actually being voted on in the Knesset today. They were never presented to the public for consideration. Another justification or explanation in support of this legislation is that anyone who protests the planned legislation is a leftist or terrorist or anarchist. I'll let that speak for itself. And the final rationale put forward is that the old Ashkenaz elites of Israel 
the Jews who originated in Eastern Europe, are terrified at losing their lock on power that they have enjoyed since the state's founding. The narrative goes something like this. Ashkenaz Jews control all powerful state institutions, like the judiciary and Supreme Court, and cannot abide the growing demand for power from the disenfranchised majority of Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews. We'll have a closer look at these issues in a few minutes. State of Tel Aviv is supported by listeners and readers like you. We are an independent media organization, and in order for us to create this content, we need your support. Please visit our website at stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. That's stateoftelaviv, dot com, and consider becoming a paid subscriber. You will also find some fabulous print articles providing superb background analysis and opinion on what's going down. Each supporter makes a huge difference. Thanks for being here. And now, back to the episode. This moment in Israeli history is truly existential and sinister. It is about a prime minister who has become a morally corrupt shadow of his former self. It is about his iron rule over the Likud party for more than two decades, which has resulted in anyone with integrity decamping and forming or joining other parties or leaving political life altogether. Those who are left, including the, quote, moderates, like former prisoner of Zion in the Soviet Union, Yuli Edelstein, tech entrepreneur and former mayor of Jerusalem, near Barkat, IDF chief of staff, Yoav Gallant, and former Shin Bet head, Avi Dichter, have all become fearful of losing their status and power. This conflict is not about some bunkered Ashkenaz elite controlling the country. Au contraire, it is about messianic religious extremists, ultra-orthodox extremists, and anti-Zionists, and a gutted Likud party grabbing at power maniacally and not giving a fig about the consequences of the frenzy and chaos they are causing. I have always said and maintain that I will publish all perspectives but this is one of those moments in history when you stand up to be counted. and I am firmly with the protesters. And the hundreds of thousands of Israelis demonstrating every Saturday night, who you just heard singing Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem, at the beginning of last Saturday's protest at Kaplan and Begin, they are not a bunch of raving lunatics. They represent every demographic, ethnically, socioeconomically, geographically, professionally, militarily. It has been an indescribably tense time in Israel during the last few months. But two weeks ago, the real issue, which has been fomenting in Israel for decades, surged to the fore. When 37 of 40 Israeli Air Force fighter pilots announced that they were not going to attend one day out of many weeks of annual reserve training, everyone went ballistic. 
Every year, well into their 40s or 50s, these pilots, the creme de la creme, take on the most daring and critical missions of the Air Force. They serve up to two months of reserve duty, leaving their work, families, and lives to serve their country. Guys like Tsur, a commander in an elite combat unit, who I met on Saturday night at Kaplan, is also considering whether or not he should serve in the reserves. So let me ask you the question I usually start off with, which is, why are you here tonight? Because I'm worried. Why? What are you worried about? I'm worried not being in a democracy, in a real liberal democracy. Prime Minister Netanyahu calls Tsur a savan in Hebrew, a refuser, an anarchist. The backlash and rage from the huge reserve force and regular Israeli in the street have been overwhelming. Oil, meet fire. State of Tel Aviv is supported by people like you, but creating quality independent content requires resources, and I'd really appreciate it if you would support our work by becoming a paid subscriber. This is a particularly intense and important time in Israel. We will bring you real stories in real time that are shaping the nation. Thanks, and now back to the podcast. I have spoken over months with hundreds of Israelis on these issues, but we'll spotlight a few in this podcast. We'll start by introducing Oren Shvil, a 52-year-old, happily married businessman with three children, one of whom has completed service in a combat unit, with another who will be drafted in six months. He and his wife each have two university degrees in engineering and live in a pastoral, small community in central Israel. Oren is also a graduate of an elite combat unit, having served five years from age 18 And to this day, even though not required by law any longer, he still does reserve duty every year. Eight weeks ago, two weeks after the election, he had a layover in an airport in Europe and too much time on his hands. Increasingly disturbed by the deterioration of civil discourse in Israel, Oren started a small WhatsApp group with a few friends. It was meant to be a private place, among five or six close friends, to try to make sense of the mounting chaos. Today, the group has close to 3,000 members, and all are reservists in elite combat units. He has barely worked at his business, in recent weeks, devoting every moment of every day and night to fighting this reform. One of four brothers, all of whom served in combat units, Oren is beyond shocked by the unraveling of all that seemed to cohere Israeli society. Until now. Or so he thought. Oren speaks passionately about how these people are the furthest thing from anarchists. They are self-motivated, high achievers, they were in the army and they have been since in life, and not an Ashkenaz monolith or left-wingers or slackers or any of the other epithets that reform supporters prefer to throw at them. There is no question that the justice system in Israel needs reform. Israel needs a Bill of Rights. But this legislation 
is so deeply flawed and poorly thought out that it is mind-boggling that any government, even one in a huge hurry, would promote it. Furthermore, in democracies, when significant institutional reform is contemplated and undertaken, proper public consultation is required, not just so that people feel they have a say, but so that they are perceived to have had a say, that they feel that their voice matters and that they are invested in the outcome. That is how democracy works in theory and practice. Form becomes substance sometimes, and in a democracy, the time-consuming, often frustrating process of public consultation is undertaken because it lends greater legitimacy to the outcome. But here, we have a shotgun package of legislation drafted by a foreign-funded NGO. No public consultation, no proper legislative committee hearings. In fact, quite the opposite. The government is escalating due process and ramming the legislation through the Knesset and committee in a manner that absolutely precludes any real discussion. They don't want it, and they don't care. That much is very clear. Supporters of the package dismiss the doomsday scenarios put forward by critics of the legislation as being absurd. But, see, that's the thing. They're not. I'd like to introduce Jeroen Kramer a former elite combat soldier, partner in a Tel Aviv law firm, husband, father of three. He says this is a war on democracy, full on. He tries to explain his deep despair and refusal to surrender. Almost every day, you know, you wake up in the morning and you cannot believe that you hear what you hear, that you see what you see. And, you know, I promised myself that I'm not going to lie to myself and to my family when I see a danger in front of me. And it's quite difficult, you know, because history felt us that when the dangerous is in your door, knocking on your door, it's too late, it's too late. So people cannot understand what is happening, you know. In Israel, uh, there's no just Israel will not be a democracy, you know. And when you see the new government and you see the process that started like two months ago, for me, it was a very quick, I understood that what is happening is totally different from what we saw. Unprecedented. Unprecedented, actually, frightening, actually. And uh, you read, and you don't have to be a lawyer to read all these offers and to understand the danger, how dangerous he is, actually. And you, you already know the people that are behind all this. Yaron Kramer's core argument is that you cannot change the rules of the game in the middle. If you are planning to introduce legislation that effectively destroys liberal democracy in Israel, then you have to campaign on that platform. And no party in the current governing coalition did that. There were fiery speeches here and there about how corrupt judges are and the need to take the Supreme Court down a peg, but no one floated the total evisceration of the court and through and through politicization of the judicial system, including senior officials in the Ministry of Justice. Nor did any party publicly discuss the notion of an override law with 61 votes, and anyone who says otherwise is being untruthful. Tsur, an elite combat reservist who was introduced earlier in this podcast, also has strong views on his potential dilemma as a reserve soldier serving what he views as a potentially non-democratic country. 
If you are called up to do reserve duty, will you do it? If the laws pass? If they will pass, so first of all, this will be a great dilemma for me. Honestly, a great dilemma because I'm serving, I serve in the reserve for, uh, I think, 25 years. Nine of, we, nine of them as a company commander and then uh, of uh, deputy of battalion commander with uh, one war and several, I think, 400 days during these 25 years. Uh, by the way, under Netanyahu and Barak and many other prime ministers, and Olmert and Sharon, we don't choose our prime ministers as a reserves, uh, reserve uh, forces. But now it seems that the rules are being changed. And the, the contract between us and the company, if it's going to pass, is breached. And this is something very fundamental. And that's why this time it's a real dilemma. And it wasn't a dilemma until now. I want to ask you, how has the contract been breached? If these rules will be passed, it's not a real democracy. And the basic rule is this, we are a democracy. And if and when and while we are a democracy, sometimes you do things, you don't agree with them, you don't want to do it, uh, but you do it. You don't ask questions in the army. You ask questions as a citizen, as a civilian, which is your duty, but not as a commander in the, in the IDF, reserve or not reserve. And if you are not a democracy, it's the basic rule that have been uh, breached. It's kind of ironic that we're standing right outside the Kyria, the IDF headquarters, as we have this conversation, no? Absolutely. I have a reserve uh, day, two days here in the Kyria, in two weeks from now, and I will go. But I hope that the rules won't pass, uh, because it worries me and, you see, I think more than one million people, at least. Rotwang is a brilliant guy. He understands very well what he's doing. And he said, for my opinion, democracy is the law of Torah. This is exactly why this government is in such a hurry. Their strategy seems to be to stun their adversaries with surprise, shock and awe. Except they're outflanked. They are up against the sharpest strategic minds in the country, the Air Force, elite combat fighters, and a huge chunk of the population to go along with them. Among them, of course, is your own Kramer. Okay. It will be very quick. We understood that they are doing it and they want it to be, to accelerate the process in order that they will be able to control the Supreme Court, actually. And, you know, one day you're op you open the TV and you see the president of the Supreme Court in Israel talking like, I've never heard a judge especially you not know, the president of the Supreme Court talking like that. Professors for law, lawyers. Give me an example of the sorts of things. Give me something specific that you're thinking of as you say that. When I see Esther Fayut, 8 o'clock, prime time in TV, talking and saying that there is a danger for the, uh, for the, for the power of the, uh, of the Supreme Court, that there is a risk what I interpret as a risk for the democracy. This is the first time. I, I've never had a, a judge, as I said, especially up the Supreme Court talking for the public 
you know, for the people of Israel. It's at the very extreme. It's and and for me, this point was one of the points that I, I I've decided that hey, he's going too fast, and the danger is is here. It's here. It's almost knocking on my door because if it was knocking on my door, it was one step too late actually. And we have to wake up now. We have to wake up now. You know, I promised my kids that I will do everything that Israel will be the state that I was born, that I was raised on. Yaron Kramer is a professional legal mediator, and he remains hopeful that some form of compromise can be negotiated. Another veteran, Omri, who lives in Sweden and flew in with his wife to support his colleagues last Saturday, shares this hope. It's have to be stopped. It's have to be some negotiation because one side want to make changes, the other side maybe also agree that maybe need to have some changes, but still how you do it and what they do, it's not changes. It's a revolution. Do you think that there's really any willingness to, uh, to negotiate? Do you see that? They have to because they climb a tree and they look down and they know how because they see down there it's a huge flag and under all this flag if you go up and look now under yeah, yeah. this flag it's people and it's people from all over the sides of Israel it's the Israeli people so uh, look yourself that, that's amazing people come in and om om yen do it and do it come in because they don't want to give up and they want to do it in a democratic way. They don't want to do it by force or whatever. As mentioned earlier, the proponents of this legislation also take the position that any opposition to the reform package is really about an Ashkenaz power grab. Elites, as they call them, desperately protecting their turf. So let's have a look at that issue. Meet Yossi, a fifth-generation Israeli veteran of elite combat service, and 25 years in the military reserves. Yossi lives in central Israel with his wife and three sons, one of whom currently serves in an elite combat unit. A self-described right-winger, until recently, Yossi was a long-time Likud supporter. He speaks sternly and determinedly that Israel was conceived as and will remain a democracy. You know, we live in a democracy. We still live in a democracy, and we're not, I mean, this will, will stay as a democracy. We'll make sure that it stays a democracy. But when one like me that was born and raised fifth generation in Israel into democracy and took it for many years for granted, I mean, if you would tell me even four months ago that this is a discussion we're going to have today, I would look at you and say, you know, what were you drinking or smoking or what fell on your head? But Yossi explodes with passion and anger when I ask him if he sees this crisis as stemming from some sort of ethnic or race war among and between Jews, particularly Ashkenaz and Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews. Look, the number one, one of the things that I said that, you know, the, the, the worst that is happening right now is that they're tearing the Israelis apart. They're tearing Israelis apart. Man, not just that you're doing wrong, you're tearing Israel. And for that, the history will never forgive them. Yaron Kramer, the lawyer-come-activist, sees things similarly. My father was born 
1937 in Poland before the Second World War II, and he was an Holocaust survivor. And my mother was born in Egypt. So when they say Ashkenaz, who am I? I'm Ashkenaz. I'm Eastern. Where, where I'm from? I feel that I'm Jew, very proud man actually. My grandfather was a rabbi actually in in the Botsaid in, in Oh wow, yeah. And I feel that they you know if you if you ask my kids, are they asking us another they will ask you what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You know? So the fact that there are leaders in Israel that taking this for years in order to tear us apart the people. Right. To make some kind, you know, to divide us to two camps, like there is Ashkenaz and not Ashkenaz, it's awful, actually. And we have to fight, first of all, against, um, against this. It's before, it's before the reform or change in, in, in the legal system. It's our society. I would want to live. You know, I educate my kids to, for love and support and, and you know, and to, to help people and to help people. I really don't ask them if they are religious or not, Aram, Ashkenaz, not Ashkenaz. So I, I think that part of this struggle, actually, is for the uh, for the Israeli society, for the Israeli, you know, how how we will live here together for the next generation. I hope that we are that we we can make a change, and it's not too late, actually. But but that's the reason, actually. When guys like Yossi and Yaron and Sur and Oren protest, that hits hard. These are, after all, elite warriors. The third argument relied upon by advocates of the current legislation is that the public voted for them. They knew what they were getting, they say. We're the majority, so we can do what we want. Well... Not quite. Jeroen Kramer, the lawyer, confirms what we all know to be the case, that there was vague talk of judicial reform, but no detailed discussion of a plan of the scope that is now being shoved down the gullet of the nation. And for good reason, because the majority of Israelis, as confirmed by a succession of re recent polls, do not support such a rushed revision of what many see as the national contract to support a liberal democratic nation. The most terrifying and immediate threat to the democratic order is the override law. This stipulates that the Knesset can overrule or override any decision of the Supreme Court with a vote of the barest majority, 61 of 120 Knesset members. Think about that. It would usher in a tyranny of a majority in a system with no checks and balances. There is no constitution, no upper chamber, and the Supreme Court will, if this legislation is passed, become ornamental at best. Minority rights will be trampled. Why? Because majorities do not always get things right. And that is why, even when an elected legislative chamber has a majority, a mature democracy supports institutions that scrutinize the majority's ongoing decisions. If not against a written constitution, then at a minimum with adherence to thoughtful jurisprudence. With this legislation in Israel, it all comes down to 61 votes. No appeal, no recourse, 
no sober reflection and comment in an upper legislative chamber like a Senate. That is not democracy. In recent weeks, there has been talk of the override as nothing more than a, quote, negotiation chip, close quote, which is nothing more than a sloppy, panicked backtrack. Because there is no negotiation, nor any indication that the government is at all prepared to discuss anything in a serious manner. Furthermore, the override clause is all that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, want and get from being a part of this governing coalition. They do not trust or turn to the court. The vast majority of them are not Zionists. To them, the state is a heretical creation of godless leftists. But the state has served them well, subsidizing their lives of Torah study full-time, huge families, no army service, meaning that they take and do not contribute economically, or if they do contribute, it is wildly disproportionate to what they receive. For more on that issue, have a read of our piece, Fat Man, Skinny Man, posted on our website. There is tremendous resentment and anger among many Israelis regarding Haredi entitlements, and this recent crisis has compounded that exponentially. Orange Feel says that the bear has been hibernating. The Israelis who shoulder most of the burden of serving in the military and paying taxes to support the state. But that bear has now been poked, and it has been awakened, and it is ferocious. The broader Israeli society, Oren believes, will no longer be submissive. And it is in this context that he explains the notable silence of the Haredi political leaders. They have disappeared at a moment of crisis. שאולי היה רדום קצת בשנים האחרונות, והדברים יכולים לחזור כמו בומרנג אליהם. הסיבה שהם שותקים, אני חושב שהם מבינים שהם העירו איזה דוב משנת החורף. אורן חושב שההרדים מבינים שהם טאפט אינטו הרייג' לונג קונטיינד אינסוסייטי, שלא יתפסטפיד אין לונגר בסופו של קומפרמייז. No, he says, we want a new contract. They enjoyed this arrangement with the state for too long. And, he says, the Haredim understand that the old contract is torn up. It's over. They have unleashed a fury that will not dissipate, he says. State of Tel Aviv is supported by listeners and readers like you. We are an independent media organization, and in order for us to create this content, we need your support. Please visit our website at stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. That's stateoftelaviv, dot com, and consider becoming a paid subscriber. You will also find some fabulous print articles providing superb background analysis and opinion on what's going down. Each supporter makes a huge difference. Thanks for being here. And now, back to the episode. The first National Day of Disruption was exactly a week ago, and it was organized by Orangefiel and his team. These warriors describe it as a day of battle, which brought Israel to a standstill. Orangefiel is at a loss, however, to explain the submissiveness of the Minister of Defense and others who he knows do not support the legislation 
but who refuse to speak out. People like the former head of the Shin Bet, member of Knesset Avi Dichter, Minister of Defense Yoav Galant, and others. And that is why the home of Minister Galant was targeted in the quiet Moshav of Amikam, one of the most spectacularly beautiful areas of Israel, not far from Haifa. Amikam hosted a noisy band of anarchists last Thursday, finishing off a day of roving protests throughout Israel. They began at the offices of the Kohelet Policy Forum in Jerusalem and finished up in Moshav Amikam. Even the protesters were shocked that their comrade and colleague, Minister Gallant, who is widely said to oppose the legislation, did not even come out to say shalom, something. He hid inside. The strategy of the protests is very tactical. Go small, go hard, and target comrades in arms who have tattooed on their souls the loyalty forged among soldiers and pilots in training and combat. The close lifetime relationships of these men and women are extraordinary. Oren Shreel mentions the seven reserve soldiers who were arrested after barricading the Kohelet Forum offices last Thursday. Anyone who thinks that they will show up for reserve duty, he says, does not understand where they live. But will it work? Will these protests work? I have asked so many people this question, and all have the same answer. I have no idea. I can only hope so. Imagine the love of country that must motivate so many people to have their lives centered on protest, sustained, escalating for more than 10 weeks now. It is the only outlet the general population has to express its outrage. In fact, as we record this on Wednesday, March 15th, veterans of the raid on Entebbe in 1976 to free the hostages from an Air France plane that had been hijacked after taking off from Tel Aviv. These veterans are blockading the road to Ben-Gurion Airport to express their anger. These are not just any combat veterans. They executed and survived one of the most daring military operations of all time. And only one soldier fell on that day. Their commander, Yoni Netanyahu, national icon, hero, and older brother of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Have a look at the piece that we dropped on our website, stateoftelaviv.com, last week, entitled, What Would Yoni Say? It is an understatement to say that this historical moment is tearing Israel apart. But your own Kramer, the lawyer, is devastated, but remains determined. You know, even now I have tears. Every day I have tears. For two months. I can't believe that this is the state that I live in. But you know, from this day in time, we are getting stronger. That's what I'm saying, actually. And I'm saying to everybody that is talking with me in the last two months, you are ready for me. Yeah, it will take time. I don't know what will be the price, but we're going to win. And every time they're saying anarchists, terrorists, go to hell, and others, we're just getting stronger, believe. We're just getting stronger. Every time they are trying 
to have us as the enemies of this country. Oren Schwiel describes this as the most important war ever fought in Israel. At the beginning and end of each day, he says, he sends a motivational WhatsApp message to his group. And in one recent note, he explained how his kids had asked him whether all of this effort will help. He says that he told them that it is his responsibility to his children, to his parents, to his grandparents, to do whatever he can. He tells his kids, I don't really know if it will help, but I do know that I will always be able to say that I did not sit quietly. I did what I could. I have hardly worked in my company for weeks, he says. This is all I do. I don't sit at home watching TV. I'm not socializing with friends. I want to be able to say I did everything I could. Bad things, he says, happen when good people are quiet. And the quiet people are accomplices. He will not be counted as one of them. Oren feels a huge responsibility to honor the sacrifices made by those who came before him in building what today is the miracle of modern Israel. His grandparents experienced enormous hardships, coming from Eastern Europe in the 30s, living in tents, dealing with disease, and quite primitive living conditions. His father fought in the wars of 1967 and 73. Referring to his own generation, Oren says, we have so much more. I want to leave my kids a country that is free, fun. That is my responsibility. Like his colleague, Jeroen Kramer, Oren Schwiel says that every week, every day that passes, he thinks that things cannot get worse. And then they do. He speaks, half-stunned, about what transpired a week ago on the first day of disruption in Israel, which he calls the battle for the state of Israel. In addition to the protest activity of Oren and his group, there was a terror attack on Thursday evening in Tel Aviv, in the heart where a terrorist opened fire on people out for coffee, seriously injuring three. Two are in critical condition, fighting for their lives a week later. I happened to be dining outdoors very close by and suddenly became aware of the fact that there were too many sirens. If you live in Israel long enough, you learn, you just know, when it's because of an attack. It's in the air. And on this same day, Prime Minister Netanyahu departed for Italy to meet with Prime Minister Maloney and members of the Jewish community in Rome. There was no urgency for him to travel on this day. His insouciance infuriated the Sarvanim, the resistors, and much of Israel. Hundreds of Israelis blocked the roads leading to Ben-Gurion Airport. So, rather than taking his usual convoy to his plane, the Prime Minister and his wife flew over the pesky protesters in a helicopter. So very Marie Antoinette, as Israelis always do in times of attack and strife. Prime Minister Netanyahu did not return to Israel that evening. No, he stayed in Rome for the weekend to celebrate his wedding anniversary. To Oren Shvil and many Israelis, such detachment from the Prime Minister is simply impossible to understand or process. 
He says of Netanyahu, he's always talking about his service and his brother. But the most basic thing that every commander knows is that you lead by personal example. By snubbing the country at such a time, Bibi rendered himself utterly irrelevant, said Orangeville. He is not in control. He is not conducting himself like a prime minister. כולם אנשים מבוגרים, כלומר, אחרי צבא, אחרי שירות צבאי. כולם אינטליגנטים, כולם חיים כאן, וכל אחד יעשה את ההחלטה שלו. אבל אני רואה את התסיסה והכעס והזעם שיש לאנשים, ואני באמת אומר לכל מי שמוכן להקשיב, תבינו, זה לא יתמוסס מעצמו. זה לא יתמוסס מעצמו. ואם מישהו חושב שחבילת החוקים תעבור ויישאר לו צבא מילואים, הוא, הוא פשוט לא מבין איפה הוא חי. הוא פשוט לא מבין איפה הוא חי. זה לא יקרה. והנזק למדינת ישראל, אני לא צריך להגיד לך, הוא יכול להיות פטאלי. We are all adults, he said. Post-army service. We are all intelligent. We all live here. And each person will make his own decision. But I see the churning, the anger, the fury in people. And I say, really, to all who are prepared to hear, understand, this will not dissipate by itself. And if someone thinks that if this package of laws passes... And that a reserve army will remain. He simply does not understand where he lives. This will not happen. And the damage to the state of Israel, I don't need to tell you that it can be fatal. We have released this podcast on Thursday, March 16, 2023, the second consecutive Thursday marked as a day of disruption in Israel. Check our website, stateoftelaviv.com, for sharp analysis and opinion as to what goes down today and how things change. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool. Stay safe. Have a great weekend.